0: Welcome to WMFA, a podcast where writers talk writing. I'm Courtney Ballastier, and today I'm talking with Wayatu Moore, whose debut novel, She Would Be King, is out now from Graywolf Press. Wayatu is the founder of One More Book and is a graduate of Howard University, Columbia University, and the University of Southern California. She teaches at the City University of New York's John Jay College and lives in Brooklyn. She Would Be King is a captivating narrative about three gifted characters and the birth of Wayatu's native Liberia. Individually, the immortal Bessa, the strong June Day, and Norman, who has powers of invisibility, each represent a different African experience. Together, their narratives intersect to tell the story of the founding of Liberia. Running throughout is the omniscient narrator, a chorus of ancestors who are now one with the wind. The novel is full of what we call magical realism. Supernatural events, extraordinary abilities. But, as Wayetu says in our conversation, such storytelling wouldn't necessarily be labeled magical in Africa. Wayetu, whose family immigrated to America when she was a child during the Liberian Civil War, is now working on a memoir, and we talk about her decision when and how to share the much desired, quote, immigrant narrative. We also discuss the often rigid parameters put around diasporic literature, the importance of nuanced representation and how she preserves her relationship with the craft of writing.
1: Writing was also my first love and my first help.
0: Yeah, Um,
1: yeah. My my way of understanding our new context and our new place in this world that was for so long foreign and unforgiving of my family's foreignness.
0: Well, I thought we could get started by talking about, um, you You say in the very beginning of the book, you know, that the story sprung from this story that you were told as a child um, mm-hmm. about this, this old ma and her cat and, you know, how she killed this cat and was so mean mm-hmm. and cruel to this cat and then suffered a, a very uh, <laughs> intense death as a result. Um, mm-hmm. I first want to know, like, what impact that story had on you as a kid? You know, like, was that a horrifying thing to hear or was that... No,
1: no, it wasn't. Actually, I would say that um, just as I wrote it in the beginning of the book is how it was told to me. Like if we would see a cat and want to walk away or just, you know, my aunt had a lot of cats and that, that was the context that it was told in. My aunt had a lot of cats. And if the cats came near me, I would just like shoo them away. Mm -hmm. And my mom would say, Oh, you know, make sure that you're kind to cats. And, you know, remember the old woman, remember the old woman, she killed her cat and the cat, ghost jumped to the top of her roof and it fell down. And it's a story that we also heard um, in law when we were in hiding. And so it was, it was, but it was just like that. It was like a a more of an aphorism than anything, just a warning Um, in the same way that they would say, you know, take care of nature. Nature is a part of you. Like if you, if you break, break a limb from a tree um, in a malicious way that you don't have use of, if you do it in vain, Um, Then that's like breaking a limb from an ancestor. So these were all aphoristic things or like be kind to cats. That old woman beat her cat. The cat, his ghost jumped to her roof and killed her. And so my engagement with that particular aphorism came in 2008. um, And that's the first time I'd taken a shot at writing African literature. Um, Because before, I think I was writing more poetry and short stories that were all based in the United States and Texas specifically where I was raised. Mm -hmm. And there were some aspects of the story that had, of course, um, immigrant leanings. um, And, you know, I was exploring my identity as an immigrant through, through literature at that time. Um, And I I said, you know what, or it was the guy I was dating at the time. He was like, have you ever thought about writing African literature? I was like, well, you know, the stories that I'd heard were all oral. So I guess I didn't even think about writing them down. They were, Mm. they were, And um, and so I said, yeah. And I was like, you know what? Uh, Let me let me give a shot to like writing out um, one of like the aphorisms that I heard growing up. Um, And I wrote it down. And I remember thinking, this is very interesting, because then I gave the old woman a name and, you know, gave the village some context. And then I started to think, well, then what happens after she kills her cat? Like what what happens in that village after? Because that's where that particular story or aphorism ends. Is that oh that you know it, it ends with like very very blunt moral you know don't kill animals their ghosts will haunt you kind of thing. And it's like but then what happens in the circumstance that an old woman or whomever is haunted by his or her her ghost? What happens to the village? What happens to the woman? What happens to the cat? And in previous versions the cat actually returned. Hmm. and haunted Bessa. <laughs> so um, yeah, so it's gone through a few iterations. That was my, that was my um, engagement with that particular story and how it inspired me because then it really is the catalyst for my desire to build this world and to explore this group of people, my mom's bi. And so they are mostly Muslim and Christian, but they're also very superstitious.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So it's like, even though they adopted colonial and Western religions, superstition was still very much alive in in their culture and in their world so um wanting to explore that and then of course that expanded into a wider exploration
0: of Liberian history right yeah so did you sit with Bessa and her village for a while and then that aperture kind of expanded to to pick up you know the other characters and the other settings that are now in the novel or you know, I, I I saw an interview with you where you did say specifically like, you know, you wanted to tell the story of the history of Liberia. And so you yeah. had to start with the people who were there before Liberia is Liberia. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I always knew that it would go beyond the village and going beyond the village in that time, you, they, you would encounter settlers. And so that story was always going to be I, I, as soon as I decided that it was going to um, I was going to expand it from the cat's death and resurrection, then I knew that it was Liberia's story. Um, I just sh- chose the Vi people because my mother's Vi. Uh-huh. And so, so yeah, I would say, um, it was always an exploration of Liberia. I don't think I, I, I sat with Bessa and determined that as the only story, um, I knew that it was going to be more expansive than that. Um, I, I think we're it, sort of venture off into um, my initial leanings was that I, w- I wasn't totally sure that um, the settler's tale would, would tales would take me off of the continent of Africa. Mm, mm-hmm. um, like perhaps it would be an exploration of these groups just already in, in Liberia. Bessa leaving the village after her exile, after Safwa exiles her and then encountering them and then that story is as it is, but, um, the backstory was, was essential. Um, and it was also something that I'd wanted to tell for a very long time because then my paternal side is actually, is, is actually a Liberian or from the settling group.
0: Yeah. Can you tell people a little bit more about your, your backstory? You, your family left the country when you were very young, right?
1: Yeah. So my family left Liberia when I was five because of the war. Um, and we lived in Texas. Uh, we moved around a bit first. We we had initially moved to New York because my mom was at Columbia. Um, and then we moved around for about two or three years or so, living with family, and then finally settled in Texas when my, my parents got solid jobs. And um, and Texas is where I spent my formative years. And um, it was, it became, I was dealing with a lot of things. One, of course, is that we were, um, a black and immigrant family uh-huh. in a, a place that didn't have black immigrant families. They were either immigrant and mostly Mexican-American or they were African-American. Uh-huh. Um, and so that that was very alienating. And then additionally, I think before we moved to Texas, um, we were in Memphis actually, so in the deep south. And my parents um, have very deep accents. So they were going through their fear of racism, um, and my, my mother at certain points during my childhood, like when I was maybe seven or eight, I would have to call and make various appointments for her, oh, wow. to the doctor, yeah. to the plumber, because they just wouldn't even entertain her accent mm-hmm. on the phone, mm-hmm. even though she was speaking English. And, um, she, and I think from there sort of understanding, uh, pretty early that we were very different and mm-hmm. not really knowing how to grasp it because our lives in Liberia were so different. It was just, we were very middle-class, very settled, um, very happy. And so I, I I buried myself in books, buried uh. myself in literature and in other forms of art as a form of rehabilitation. And um, and I'm so thankful to my parents for that because they they definitely urged and encouraged my siblings and I to indulge in, in the arts whenever we had an opportunity to. Um, and I think that naturally grew into um, an affinity for storytelling, and that took different forms. I sang in church when I was a kid, and then I started to, and then I actually, when I moved to New York um, for undergrad, when I was 17, I moved to New York to study theater at Tisch. Mm. And and then that um, evolved and transitioned into, because writing was always present, um, but then that that ended up evolving and and really becoming more, prevalent, and more important to me than performance. Um, and I just started working on that craft and, and it became the craft that I was exclusively working on. And um, So my background plays into my desire to writing was also my first love and my first help. Yeah. Um, yeah. My, my way of understanding our new context and our new place in this world that was for so long foreign and unforgiving of my family's foreignness.
0: Yeah, and and I want to go back more to that idea of of kind of finding salvation in books, because I think that's true for so many kids who feel out of place or like they don't fit into their surroundings. And obviously what you're describing is a, is a very extreme example of that. I'm, I don't want to kind of neutralize it into this like universal, you know, oh, I'm a little bit weird kind of experience, but... Mm-hmm. um were you reading books that you saw yourself reflected in, or kind of what did that what did that do for you in terms of helping your understanding of of sort of your situation in the world
1: well i I would say that through the arts i I saw myself in my in the characters because I was looking at their humanity mm-hmm. like I realized that I was black and different um like much later when i was when I was very young watching. Uh, the never-ending story or mm-hmm. the Princess Bride, I very much saw myself in those characters. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. like they were me and I was them. Um, and so because of that, I was able to. They were able to impact me. You know, my I, I was looking at myself as I guess an immigrant, a foreigner, and an underdog in that way. Mm-hmm. And I didn't. It was later on that I began to perhaps pay attention to characters in the stories being black. But I will say that. Um, when a teacher brought in Rufaro's Beautiful Daughters by John Steptoe mm.
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, into my classroom, I was probably about seven. And I remember just sighing mm. like, oh, my gosh, this is amazing. Um, but I'm not sure that it's because the characters were black. I think it's because they were African.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. And so my introduction to my blackness and my race and, and racism was when I was in middle school, I was um, coming home from track practice with some friends and we were at a corner store and, you know, there was like a confrontation because one of my team members thought that, um, well, he was like following her around Mm -hmm. and she was like, you know, stop following me. He ended up using the N word and we ran out. And that's when I was like, oh my gosh, there's, 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 there's something, there's something else very real going on. Mm -hmm um not to say that i wasn't aware of my blackness before but i had always seen it as something that was beautiful because my my parents always signified that the color of our skin was beautiful and just like the our our biology the way that the sun reacts to our skin mm. and so i i had never thought of it as a negative thing you know what i mean and my my dad he my my parents are intellectuals so my dad is also a pan africanist so he was always teaching me about black leaders around the world. Mm-hmm. So from a very early age, um, I was learning about W. B. Du Bois and Thomas Sankara and Kwame Nkrumah. Um, and so I, I looked at blackness and the resilience of blackness almost as like a privilege, like, oh, we're, we're like the strong people, mm-hmm. you know? So my insecurities at an early age came from my being an immigrant or my being foreign. And it wasn't until I was perhaps an early teenager that experience in middle school in a very small town in Texas that I realized, oh, there's something else that I should be paying attention to as well. That's very real. Um, mm-hmm. and my friends who were always wonderful and supportive played a role in that as well, because things would happen and I would assume, you know, oh, well, that person's having a bad day." And they'd be like, "No, they're doing it because we're black. <laughs> you know And I'd be like, "Well, what, well, how do you know they're not having a bad day?" And so
0: mm-hmm.
1: and so that's what that's what's one of the things that's 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 really sad and unfortunate um about being in America is that there's no way we would have moved to any other country after Liberia and be able to have the lives that we had in a place other than America. And for that, I'm so grateful because I know that. The realization of my dream is because we moved here. Sure. Um, that social mobility is very real, and we're a testament to that. Um, but I think one of the unfortunate things is that racism and these various complexes of superiority and inferiority, they're a learned thing. They're, they're very much a part of the American fabric because as a Black person moving here, my family wasn't thinking about, oh, you know you know, they wouldn't look at a white person and automatically assume that they were being racist to them. Right. Like they would say, oh, you know, you know, we're going to, oh, that, that person must've been having a bad day. Mm-hmm. They would, they, they don't look at, but 10 years into America, you're like, oh, well maybe that person's racist. Right. Um, and it's that kind of indoctrination that really sells the country short of its potential because inferiority complexes, superiority complexes these are learned things, and oh. these are things that part, that are part of what it means almost to be American, or, or, or it plays a role in your understanding of your role um, in the country, and your place in the country. And so, I wanted to definitely then focus on the blackness of the story, the blackness of the characters. Um, I would say very much it's a Pan Africanist manifesto as well. Mm-hmm. And also placing it in that indoctrination, then going back to Liberia, Mm -hmm, right? Right. Like if that's something that is learned here, what happens if Black bodies who have been indoctrinated in that way move back to a continent and then have to socialize with and build a nation with those who do not have that indoctrination? What does that look like? What's the shape of it?
0: Yeah, I think I, I found that all very powerful, and a and, and a really a really powerful moment for me too was was June Day when he realizes that he's not just fighting like white colonizers. Yeah. Um. And you just you just feel that crush. Mm-hmm. Lovely. Like, yeah. And and I, I I'm so glad that you decided to explore the backstories of his character and of Norman to see, because it, it was so helpful to me to see it in the American context. Um, you know, because cause as you say, you know, I, I've seen you say in interviews, like what you're taught in school, you know, as an American kid about Africa or about Liberia. I mean, you mm-hmm. know, I, I'm i guessing I'm like most readers coming in with very little context. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and so it, it was so powerful to see how all of that weaves together for me and thank I and you. I think like yeah of course I mean and I don't I hope that's not a double-sided compliment or backhanded compliment in terms of like thank you for contextualizing it
1: in my uh, context no. you know I don't mean
0: that no but, like, no I didn't I didn't understand it as that is all I, I
1: I appreciate you saying that because it it does um it is tangential in many ways and for people who are not fans of tang- tangential narratives it's it's generally just not for them. Mm-hmm. And so they, you know, in, in, in and in a, the story that I was writing before of everyone already being on the continent and Bessa sort of just being exiled and then encountering these people and sort of making sense of them while they're there is more traditionally how, how you know, a, a writer or an author in the canon would, would approach it. And so I recognize that it's tangential. So you saying that that was helpful is is makes me feel good. So thank you, <laughs> okay, <good. laughs>
0: Um I would love to talk about um, the kind of the spiritual element, the magical realism of the book. And it seems already to me, from how you've talked about the stories and the aphorisms that you were told as a child, that that was a very natural uh, muscle for you to kind of use and relax at various points throughout the book. But it's really the touch of that is really well done and I wonder and that, and it's so easy for that to not be well done you know so I, I just wonder mm-hmm. if you could talk a little bit about that from kind of the craft perspective like is that something you were aware of like is this feeling natural in in the in the world that I'm creating or am I am I hitting yeah. these notes too hard or that kind of thing
1: yeah um okay so uh, two points one um I will say that in some of the scenes where magic was evident I had I had to scale back a bit Mm -hmm. because then it bordered fantasy and I, and I definitely did not want the world to seem like a fantasy world. I wanted it to seem very real. Right. Um, So in in some ways I feel like as I went through the editing process, I did find myself having to scale back. Um, Secondly, if this story were to be told um, or read in West Africa, in Liberia or in the vibe village where, my mother started her life, it would be no big deal that these people had, one mm-hmm. was immortal and one could make himself invisible. And mm-hmm. one, they would be paying attention to the love story between Bessa and Sappua, mm-hmm. right? And I get asked this question a lot and I love it because it's my opportunity to really just explain that my introduction to storytelling was through uh, magical realism and incorporating these fantastical elements, but they were not spectacle in any way or extraordinary in any way it's like someone was going to these two people are talking and one has to go to the market and the, and the woman flies to the market and as a kid I was never like wow how did she fly to the market it was like well what did she go to the market for why did she leave the conversation were they fighting yeah and I think that that's the my introduction to the architecture of storytelling was through this genre um, and so when my family moved here and I realized that the only places that I saw stories being told in that way were through Grimm's Fairy Tales or through Disney, I was just like, huh, these are very like, you know, boring stories that I'm gonna hear in school. <laughs> <laughs> and so um so when I, you know, decided that I wanted to 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 write and write seriously, um my short stories, my you know earlier works they all included some aspect of fantasy and realism because that was just my introduction to storytelling um, and and because of that I think that uh, if i'm if I'm telling this story in West Africa in in Liberia, one there wouldn't be a pressure to categorize it and i obviously I understand that the need to categorize has to Deal with it. the American literary industry is so large, and so you need to position certain works. Um, but then, then too, I feel like they would be paying more attention to the really relationships between the people as opposed to to some of the magical elements. Because unfortunately, I think it's because of the magical elements that were in the book that it was it took a hard time to sell. Actually, mm. the book sold in 2015, and the response that it initially received was, uh, well. It isn't YA. <laughs> my oh. agent said no, it's not YA because you know that's where they generally put right. um, fantasy and and magical realism and and especially with with characters of color. So my agent said no, it isn't. And they're like, oh, but we don't really have comps for this. Like who? Like what? Who? I mean maybe like the the older genre, but those are those are like classics. Like we and so it was so hard to sell. And then 2018. Black Panther comes out, right? And now everything's like, "Oh, where, where's the where, you know, what's the fa- African fantasy book that's sold this week?" You know? Wow. And, and so it's like, I, I think that, on one hand, it's great that this genre that's always existed among diaspora writers, and this form of storytelling that's always existed among diaspora writers, is being recognized and has an, an opportunity to be distributed to the wider industry. Um, But it isn't new, right. right? Like just because like there, it's being recognized now. It isn't. It isn't new.
0: I was just, I was just gonna say that you know, hearing that response of like, well, what are the comps? It's like, you know, I think immediately of like Salman Rushdie or like I'm looking at your press release and it's and there's a comparison to Yan Martell, which seems legit. You know, like there are comps. It's just, I wonder. Like, I don't know. There, that's that's yeah, that's an odd. Well, I,
1: I think that some of the you know and i and i don't i don't I don't want to believe that it it has like socio political implications right. but well that's kind the comps of are like at. these yeah exactly the comps are are these like vehements in literature, and it's yeah. like, oh well, this like black girl i mean right right it, it's it's like a nice story, but what can it actually do, and what is it trying to do? We're not quite sure, so then yeah, you do think if i if it was a if they thought that i was a male writer or if i was some other writer presenting this if it would be received differently um but i mean i'm grateful now it, sure. it made its way somehow i'm totally grateful but it is interesting to see like how um the reception of this genre over time and what inspires it and and, and also a commentary on how many other stories are out there that are utilizing you know, unique methods of storytelling by diaspora writers mm-hmm. that are just getting like pushed off or ignored. And how many of these writers so talented and so eager to share their stories and their histories aren't being given an opportunity because it does exist in somewhat of a um, a rigid industry when it comes to like sales. And obviously, to be fair, because I'm a bookseller as well, um, it is a competitive industry and sure. people don't read. So they they have to go off of some sort of metric um, in their decision-making, and I understand that. Um, but I just think that that dynamic at times could be unfortunate because I'm certainly not the only one who has a story like this. There are so many thousands of others.
0: Yeah, and I think that's such a, you know, that's something that comes up a lot on the show with writers of all kinds of backgrounds, and it comes up for me with, um, I write a lot about my native region of the states which is Appalachia which mm-hmm. now everyone has decided has exactly. one origin story and it was been and it was written oh by J. D. Vance you know so yes, it's like yes. and I and you know Celeste Ng, we had this conversation of just like okay well here's here's the Asian book I remember Zinzi Clemens when she came on said you know it's really it's really uh troubling and disorienting to be like the black writer that is chosen by the publishing industry for a season you know and Mm -hmm. um and and it is such a problematic thing to just not let a multiplicity of narratives stand for one place it's like everybody wants to just say okay well I figured it out because I read that one book
1: yeah exactly and then the other side of it is then when they say okay so there's there's a writer that exists, and let's let's expand now and find other writers. And I'll use like the um, Nigerian writers as an example, mm-hmm. um, because I think that they have longevity, perhaps. Mm-hmm. And it it's I feel like it's just now, after maybe 30, 40 years of seeing Nigerian writings, just now that we're able to view these stories or or hear stories or that they're publishing stories that are more than biafra or that are more than social conflicts or um you know uh ethnic conflicts Mm -hmm. now you're you're reading more about the humanity and the lives that exist among everyday nigerians and that's like what 30 40 years since things fall apart right um and so then you think that it's it does take a long time for the industry to then stop looking at so there's 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 a case of having one representative, but then there's also a case as Chimamanda herself said of having just one story Right. of, okay, well, we want the immigrant narrative. So tell me what it's like to be a Nigerian immigrant, or, you know, we want the ethnic narrative. So what was it like with these ethnic groups who were fighting, or we want the colonial narrative. And, you know, Liberia as an introduction, I I do think that some of the reason that the book is being received in the way that it is, is because it's like, oh, there's this new place and it, it's right. sort of like, Oh, this, this, but there are so many other, I mean, I would recommend the writings of Howell a um, and Bamba Sherry and uh, Rob tell Paley and other Liberian writers who don't dwell on the history as much. Like how is so great. She had a piece in Granta a couple of years ago, um, just about, this girl who goes from South Africa to Liberia and it's like post Ebola, but the piece isn't really about Ebola. Mm -hmm. Um, It is just about a girl who is trying to find her way in this country and dealing with love and dealing with very human things. Um, And I'm so eager and excited to get to the place where POC, LGBT women writers aren't sort of relegated to these narratives that are you know, will surely sell. So, you know what I mean? So they're being, they're the ones that are being picked up or aren't being pressured, um, to write things that make their identity spectacle.
0: Right. And like explain yeah. it to people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I really was struck by and really loved this. Uh, this is something in a, there's a New York times article about you that I'll link to in the show notes. And, um, a Liberian poet and a professor at mm-hmm. Penn State Altoona, uh, Patricia Jabba Wesley says of you, um, she is establishing a different voice. She is not writing about the war. She is not writing about poverty or writing about villages in a patronizing way. And that really, really hit home for me because again, with Appalachia, like not writing about poverty was what really made that like click for me. Cause it's just like people, you, you're meeting that resistance of people wanting you to tell the story that they think they already know.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and the thing is, like, on the one hand, that's why when as I've been touring and talking a lot about um, actually African literature, I've been encouraging people to also look at publishers that exist on the continent, Uh
0: um,
1: um, because if you're interested in the day to day, the livelihoods, the humanity um, and just like the universal themes of people on the African continent, um then those african publishers because they're publishing for africans of course they're not going to write books about you know wars and diseases and and poverty in that way um they are looking more for these universal things that that bind us together um and so i've been encouraging people to also look for for publishers on the on the continent um and like i said it's hopeful because i do think that the publishing industry here is changing, mm-hmm. right? Um, regardless of whether or not it's, it's based on trends, I do think that now you're seeing like an elevation of, of books and writers that just would never have had an audience even three years ago, mm-hmm. you know, even three, four years ago. And I think that that's very hopeful. And I think that's a wonderful testament to the overall progress of not only the industry, but the perspectives um, and the powers that be behind it.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I mean, you know, change has to happen steps at a time, yeah. I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um going back to the the magical realism thing cuz I love the 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 idea of that being kind of just storytelling and and the sort of western need maybe to put the additional label on that. Um I was I was listening to you and I was reading interviews with you and I was kind of filtering it through this podcast that I have just listened to. Um uh it's called Strange Magic and it's these um their tarot readers. Um, and I and I follow this one tarot reader. So I was listening to their show and they started talking about how a lot of these rituals were then sort of co opted by organized religion or kind of made like palatable by organized religion. And like mm-hmm. I was raised very Catholic. And so like all of those things that I just took for granted and didn't even think about. I was like, oh my God, yeah, we drink blood. And I didn't even like <laughs> think about that. You know? Yeah. And yeah. so so I'm thinking about that too in this other like this uh, as this other layer of like subjugation. Like, well you're we call it magical realism when you do it or we call you know this is superstition when you do it, but it's it's doctrine when we do it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
1: And I feel like that's, that's one, one of the reasons why um, I think diaspora writers get frustrated, um, especially now or recently is that these things that are sort of surfacing in um, diaspora works, they were rejected for so long um, and suppressed among black writers because they were seen as lacking civility and decency Um, communication with, the supernatural, reverence to the ancestors, believing that the ancestors, you know, never die, things like that. They're like, oh, well, that's not, that's not civilized. And so they were suppressed during imperialism, during colonialism. And now that, you know, I think diaspora writers are tapping into that. It's like, oh, well, welcome to this new way of storytelling. (laughs) It's like, well, no, that's not how that's worked, you know, historically for sure. And then, and then that's not to say that, I think most cultures and most people around around the world have definitely had you know periods of like suspicious um, doctrines sort of infiltrating their societies. I mean, the Salem witch trials were a very real thing, right? I mean, they were they were killing women arbitrarily. Um, They said it was based off of off of religious doctrine, but a a lot of it was just like you know superstition and just a different a different form of spirituality, but then, if you hear of things like that happening in a village somewhere in Africa where um, you know uh, an ethnic group decides that, okay, well, this person's curse, we're going to condemn them to the woods." And it's like, "Oh my gosh, the, these people are so evil, they're so horrible." And then there's imposition of there's a tendency to, for the of the West to try to stop these things and halt these things. And what it does is it robs that group of the agency yes. of figuring out that they're really, you know, being ridiculous on their own. It's Mm -hmm. like people telling them that this is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. During Salem, no one imposed. People just figured out like, hey, this is is actually pretty ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's, that's the infuriating part is there's just a a pervasive uh, thievery of agency that occurs. And so you have these groups that do you have practices and beliefs that aren't totally logical and the spiritual spirituality, the spiritual aspects of it um, are are inhuman, um, inhumane rather. And rather than really coming to those realizations on their own, you have someone in, you know, an aid organization in the UK or in Australia or in America saying, Oh, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. Mm-hmm. And so then the, the, the effect of that is because the person didn't come to that realization on their own is they still believe it. And so you're still going to find those practices. And even now, you know, they're taking albino children and thinking that they have some sort of, you know, good luck. You Mm -hmm. find that going on in East Africa right now. And, and so these groups are descending and saying, and that, and that's not, that's not Saying that um, anytime human rights are violated, it shouldn't be checked. Sure. But I wonder if there's a way to empower local communities to do the checking themselves. Right. Um, And and that's the issue I think I have with just this relationship between um, the West and the existence of, portrayal of, exploration of, and storytelling of um, the magic that exists in these designated foreign places. And that's something that I think that I'm, I'm still sort of figuring out even, even now with having these conversations because this book was written so long ago and that's, I, I guess, now talking about it and resurfacing different emotions and, and um, how I felt, I think, uh, when I was writing it. Now it's like, oh yeah, this is something that's happening. I wonder how we can approach that in a way that's, that's fair in a way that that isn't condemning of the Vi people, but, but showing it in a way that people realize that, um, they are human and they were prone to mistakes. Right. Um,
0: like this very non-binary, like gray yes. area kind of idea. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause if you're, com- if someone is coming in and telling you what you're doing is wrong, the other thing you're doing implicitly is learning not stress yourself.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Hey, it's Courtney. If you get as much out of listening to WMFA as I do out of producing it, and I hope that you do, then I have a favor to ask. Would you consider becoming a patron? Think of this like those fundraising drives they do on NPR, only with less Glass Okay, with no Glass Patreon is a digital platform that allows listeners to support creators and their work directly. When you become a patron, you pledge a monthly amount, and in return, I give you thank you gifts like shout-outs, transcripts, and bonus segments. Choose from my pledge tiers or donate a custom amount that works for you. All of you who do the freelance hustle will hear me when I say that literally every dollar counts. Platforms like Patreon are so important for independent creatives like me, and for growing shows like WMFA. By helping me continue to make WMFA, you're not only supporting a passion project, you're also supporting a mini-economy of independent creatives, from audio editors to graphic designers. Your money goes directly to the people behind the show. It's kind of like shopping at the farmer's market for your ears. To pledge, visit www.patreon.com backslash wmfapodcast. That's p a t r e o dot com backslash wmfapodcast. And thanks so much. I truly appreciate it. Um, yeah, when when did you start writing the book?
1: So I started writing it in, well, 2008 was when I wrote the of the first chapter. And it was the first chapter was the woman killing her cat. And, and as I said before, it was just, well, let me give it a shot. What, it, what would it be like to write African literature? Let me explore the story. And so contextualize that. And then um, I decided that I wanted to expand on it as my graduate thesis. And I, so I finished a first draft in 2009. So it took me about a year to finish a first draft, but it was a hot ass mess. It was like 600 pages. (laughs) It had like an alien. It was just, it was going everywhere. And so, um, I actually put it, I put it away for a while. Um, and I picked it back up in 2012, 2013 and worked on it for a couple of years, trimming fats and, going back in the story and really trying to figure out what it was that I was trying to, what story I was trying to tell. Um, and when it was clear that it was, it's very much Bessa's story, but Bessa is Liberia. Uh-huh. Um, then, and, and through Bessa it's very much Liberia's story um, that I felt like I was in a good place and submitted a final edit to, to my agent and she sold it in 2015, December. Uh-huh. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I um I was at a writing workshop this summer uh and a novelist Michael Parker um was running a workshop there and he said um that he has to write a novel two or three times before he knows what it's about. <laughs> <laughs> sounds, oh, sounds like oh my
1: gosh. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you read some of the I mean the first draft of this book, if you read it, you'd be like <laughs> This is so different than what exists now, and I think that's that's true of, of of most forms of art. You know, we're always editing. Even now, when I go to reading, if I'm reading it, I'm I'm oh my gosh, I should have changed that, or oh my gosh, I can't believe I wrote that. So that's endless. Um, that's it's it's I'm never going to arrive when it comes to this story, when it comes to my art, um, and that's something that I, I remind myself of, and that gives me peace. Yeah, you know, I'm not so hard on myself because. Like having that feeling as though I have some sort of responsibility, which is why even at the end of the book, I made sure that I listed, um, you know, actual historical references that could be accessed for more information on Liberian history. Um, Because I certainly I I was aware that there it's so rare to find texts in the in the canon. And I certainly did not want that responsibility. So I was like, okay, well. Let me go ahead and make this list and, and you can access it if you want to. So
0: Um How how and when kind of did the narrator come in? I really love I don't even know like kind of what you call her or it. It seems at times like it's Charlotte. And at times it seems to just kind of be the wind. And and mm-hmm. that also seems to make sense because there's this oneness with nature mm-hmm. throughout it that I really loved. But like when did that did that voice just sort of like appear as you were writing?
1: So initially, um, the, the book was third person. Mm. Yeah, it was third person. And I realized later on in the editing process that I did want a narrator and I, and I wanted a narrator to be an ancestor Mm -hmm. and I wanted a narrator to be a black woman. Mm -hmm. And I, I knew that it wouldn't or couldn't be Bessa. Um, because her story did in many ways need to be told in order to see the color around her and the shape of things around her um, that, and outside of her perspective. And then also being able to travel to these different places, that's something that Vessel would not have been able to tell. And so I knew that Charlotte was a strong character. um, And I think what happened was in, in previous iterations, you know how the wind is constantly saying, there you are, my darling. There yeah. you are, my friend. It would say, there you are, my darling. There you are, my friend. It said, there you are, my darling. The wind whispered, there you are, my friend. And and I think I was going through an editing round and I changed, the, I changed it to, there you are, my darling. I whispered, there you are, my friend. And then that started the evolution of Charlotte's character from just, because she was, always a ghost and she had admitted to sort of like disappearing and, and becoming one with the wind. Um, but I wanted it to specifically be, be her because I wanted the story to be told from someone who sort of understands the unique complexity of being a black woman in the United States and a black woman in today's world. And so, yes, it, it, the wind is Charlotte, she, but it's also it, it's a chorus of ancestors. Um, and that is very much in tune with the Vi belief that, uh, eventually when people die, they do become one with nature in some ways. Um, and, and Charlotte took her place in, in the wind. And it's through that, that she was able to, through that ubiquity that she's able to tell these stories.
0: It's also such a nice way to give, um, like, you know, her focus can be a little bit wider. Like she mm-hmm. sees she sees the bigger picture and then you can kind of hint to the reader through her of mm-hmm. a bigger picture forming.
1: Yeah, and then she's also looking through this world, um, rather than the third person narrator, she is looking at this world and, and viewing their experience uniquely from the perspective of a black woman. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so I think That's also why like during the case, it's, it's showing black people in a lot of ways as being their own savior, Mm -hmm. um, because I think what tends to happen, especially in explorations of slavery is that there is a pressure to include an abolitionist perspective or an abolitionist voice. Right. right? Yeah. And this was a story where Charlotte was saying, well, I, I'm, I'm placed in this very brutal existence in this brutal time. And I know, and I have faith that we can save ourselves. And I've seen how we can save ourselves, even when there's intraracial, intracultural conflict. Mm -hmm. Um, When it all comes down to it, as I said before, it's very Pan-Africanist in nature. Mm -hmm. When it all comes down to it, and there's like an identified energy that identified enemy rather that is imposing on our agency to have these conflicts and to figure these things out on our own, then we will band together and fight it. So then we can go about, you know, arguing and having our our conflicts and figuring it out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, and I, and I think that that's what, that's one of the points that I wanted to make and it was important to make is that I, I didn't want to imply that, um, there's a utopia when black people come together, right. From around the world. Right. Like, you know, it's ideal. And obviously that's what the settlers want and the speeches that they were making, like, this is our place and this is our land, Mm -hmm. but in the backyard, the family's still fighting. Right. And so how, how, how do I show that this is, this is a struggle that, that happens, but in the end, they need to go through that struggle in order to be empowered to save themselves. Right,
0: and, and Charlotte was the one who could human. tell that
1: exactly, exactly.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, and and that sort of tangentially is another thing brings up another thing that I wanted to talk to you about um, because it is the story is so epic in scope. Um, your treatment of time and and where you decide to kind of dip in and out, and I wonder if you could talk about you know sort of how that evolves because I imagine. I imagine you had to write a lot more than what is here, of course, Mm -hmm. to like understand what actually transpired in all of that time. But how did you, how did you kind of put the chronology or decide, you know?
1: Yeah. So, um, because I knew it was around the formation of Liberia and I knew, um, how old I wanted Bessa and Norman and June day to be when the final battle occurred. And that's like somewhere in their twenties. Okay. Yeah. Um, I did know that it would begin at the time of their birth or around the time because they're all around the same age around the time that all of them were were born and then end in the 20s. So it's over, you know, say a 20 to 25 year span um, that this story is being told. And I knew that what I had to work with um, was more or less the some of the things that were going on historically at the time. Mm So I was looking at the 25 years before 1847, before um, Liberia claimed itself as a republic, um, what was going on in the world and what was going on in these different locations that, that the main characters were born in.
0: And when you, you know, we've talked, we've talked a bit already about Bessa, but, but June Day and Norman, how did you come to what their sort of strengths or powers are?
1: Their Their powers are very much linked to the the group that they're representing, uh-huh. so Bessa's immortality, her you know having no beginning and no end was commentary to the indigene groups on the coast at the time uh-huh. like they existed and were there before. Africa was called Africa because even the name Africa is an external designation. Mm-hmm. When you're, when you're on the continent, people aren't saying, Oh, I'm African. It's like, no, you're saying what, what ethnic group you're from. Right. Um, and so just her byness or the fact that she's native to the lands. Um, I wanted to, to make her immortal as commentary to that. And then June day, of course, his resilience and strength, um, being African-american I think African Americans are the most resilient group of people on the planet and wanting to speak to that grace that exists um, coupled with with that resilience um, and the strength and I, I recognize that as a black immigrant some of the freedoms and the privileges that I exercise are because of what African-Americans experienced in this country Uh Um, and wanting to honor and speak to that strength and resilience through June day. And then Norman, so the Maroons, they escaped up to the mountains to become just that invisible. Um, And it's also historically uh, in some texts that I read, it it flirted with this possibility that Maroons were practicing witchcraft. And, um, and so that was, that was something that was, very relevant to to Norman's character as well,
0: and I, I I love the way that they kind of all come together. It's very complementary the three of their um or their abilities or their gifts, but but without it being this sort of like Avengers team of like you know um, we'll just like <laughs> it almost super... it almost
1: was with the alien
0: <laughs> character. <laughs>
1: god the alien got cut it almost was it almost bordered x-men i have to be honest with you
0: <laughs> <laughs> what what can you do you want to talk a little bit about the alien
1: um no i mean <laughs> it's, okay. it's okay it's okay it's okay it's okay yeah <laughs> it's okay <laughs>
0: um well talk a little let's talk a little bit about just kind of your writing practice um when in like your life were you working on this was this what you're doing full-time you know you talked about developing part of it as your as your thesis so maybe you had a little bit more time to write or were you working at the same time I was working at the same time I have always been working at the same time
1: yeah like I don't think I've ever had a, a point um In my life that I was solely dedicated to my art until now, until September 1st,
0: 2018. Oh, wow. Um, Now you're now you're full time.
1: Yeah. Like writing and touring and then teaching, of course. But I think that sort of feeds into um, what you're doing. And then um, obviously my my nonprofit and, Mm -hmm. and being what I need to be for that. But yeah, I was working. I was going to school full time, working full time. And and I would come home every night and I would write because. I had to write and I very desperately wanted to get this story out. And I wanted to purposely, I, 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 I purposefully wanted to introduce this story to the world. While I was writing, I knew it was something that I wanted to be distributed because there are things that I've written that I'm like, uh, oh, I don't really know if I want to do anything with this. And, they, and it just sits on my hard drive, yeah. you know, pages and pages and pages. Um, because I'm not sure that I want it to be shared, but this particular story I did want to share it, and I can admit, and I don't know if that's like something I should be ashamed of but but I can admit that that it's something that I wanted to to be published.
0: No, I think um, that's really wonderful to say out loud. I think a lot I think we do believe that like it's like too showy or something when that's like obviously the way that the that's the way that the system works, and it just seems insane to. Um, Yeah. To disown it. But I think that so often we feel compelled to out of some kind of like social obligation or something.
1: Yeah. 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 No, I I mean, I I remember writing it and being and and wanting to and being careful at some points because I would say, oh, well, no, I don't want I don't want it to seem like Liberia is this way. So it was always for an audience. Uh Like I was. Um, writing Liberia or writing my iteration and my version of Liberia for this audience, which didn't exist yet. Um, But I would come home every night and I would write. And at some point during the the weekends, or if I ever had a spell where where I wasn't working or when I actually began to just consult full-time, which was in 2013, um, I woke up every morning and I would write for a couple of hours. And so... I'd start my day writing and it would usually be for like anywhere from like one and a half to three hours, maybe, um, but more on the one and a half side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because anytime I get to the point where I have long spells where I'm just looking at the screen, I'm like, yeah, no, I have to go do something else yeah, in yeah, my yeah. day. And I never beat myself up for that because I knew that the next day I had at least an hour and a half that I was going to dedicate toward it. And I would just try it again the next day.
0: God, that's such a healthy Um, attitude.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I was just, I was not, I was not going to beat myself up because, because then when, when, if, if I were to start to beat myself up, then I would begin to resent the process because I'm like, oh my gosh, if I don't, if I don't do what I need to do in these one and a half to three hours, then then I'm going to just, you know, be, be down on myself all day or or be abusing myself through this internal dialogue. And no one's going to want to do that. And you're certainly not going to anticipate like, you know, joy after that process. And so it naturally then becomes like a resentful relationship. And so I knew that just by designating the time um, every day, generally during weekdays. So I also made it something that it's like, okay, so if I'm working for some, someone else, I'm also working for myself.
0: Mm, I love if
1: I'm, yeah. And so just a few hours every morning and I would go, you know, like I said, it was more like an hour, hour and a half every once in a while, even though I was, I would designate three hours, but it was generally around the one and a half mark that I would stop and would probably get a couple of pages of writing and maybe a dozen or so pages of editing done during that Mm -hmm, time. And and that was fine for me because I will say that even though I was, I was writing with this invisible audience that I hoped I would have one day.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. There was no urgency on when I would have it. So if I so if it took me a dozen years to get it right, and then I went out with it, that was fine with me as well. It wasn't like oh I need to get this done tomorrow, right, to get this published. No, it was like I I I I hope that this has an audience one day, and I'll write the sensitivity, um, of if there was an audience, but there's no
0: urgency to reach that audience right now. Like, I really just need to get it right. And so, yeah, you mentioned the combination of writing and editing. So do you, um do you kind of perfect, well, I'm so I'm, I'm personally trying to get rid of using the word perfect from it because I think I can be too much of a perfectionist in a really destructive way. So I'm going to dial that back. Um, are you refining like very kind of granularly as you go? Um,
1: you know, I, I, I can't even say that there's a method, like I'll just yeah. get to the laptop and then whatever I'm feeling at the time. Like some days I just write some days I write and edit some days I only edit, Mm -hmm. but there's no real, um, structure as to like when I do it.
0: I really like that approach of having a very kind of generous definition of what working on it means. And I think that's something that I've struggled with a lot, that idea of like, kind of like speaking to what you just said. Basically, I have all of the but the bad behavior that you're avoiding by doing what you're doing. When you're like, "Oh, well now I'm really resentful and fearful of this project and this process." And um and I think part of what that come part of what that behavior is has looked like for me is um a very strict definition of like what having done the writing looks like. Yeah. Yeah. And that's not helpful to anybody.
1: Yeah, cuz I I feel like because then what are you doing it for right and if i'm if i start to ask myself or i border that question or approach that question in any way then i'll freak out because i don't want it's almost like being in a relationship with someone and you just you love this person so much that you just you want to do right by it mm-hmm. and so it's like if i and and doing right by it also requires you making sure that you're totally happy with it cuz if you're miserable with it then what's going into it isn't Like love and like just wanting to do right by it. It's, it's, there's some like resentment and misery in there as well. So then you do like the board writing and the rage writing and like the, you know, writing for the sake of writing or like the craft writing where you're looking like solely at, okay, well then how do I make this sentence as perfect as? you know, Saunders or whomever that, right, you, right. that you look, that you look to and you and then you're neglecting story and you're neglecting the aspects of the process that made you fall in love with it in the first place. It, it becomes just, just, just technical. Yes. And, and I feel like then that sort of that's draining. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Because in the finished product, you're, you're proud of the way that the words sound and you're proud of the sentences, but then you're, you're not inspired by it in
0: any way. Right. I, I feel like lately I keep coming back to, um, like, you know, just like different kind of truisms or piece of, pieces of advice hitting you differently at different times. And and right now, one that's really resonating for me is to like, you know, I've heard it said a couple of different ways, like entertain yourself first, or like if you're yeah. bored writing the writer, the reader is bored reading, like, yeah. Cause, cause I think it, it can be very easy, at least for me to fall into that, um, you know that sort of taskmaster voice that you put on yourself, yeah. of just like, well, just sit here and write something. Just don't stop writing. And it's like, well, if it's soulless and it's what you're, yeah. you know, what you're describing, then then that's the wrong spirit to be coming from.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's true, and we do it to ourselves a lot. I mean, I think I, I think it, as women, we do get pressured um, in ways that perhaps male writers don't, uh-huh. um, because we as i was talking about before there's this expectation bias that exists for these groups that are sort of on the margins and so we're we're getting pressure to represent womanhood in a certain way and we want to do we want to make it just right and then also external pressures make their way into our art mm-hmm. of that like natural journey to perfectionism that has been indoctrinated in us as women um, that we that it finds itself and it, it seeps its way into our craft and in our, into our relationship with everything and that in, and that includes with writing or with painting or, or photography or whatever it is that we choose to indulge in, mm-hmm. and I think resisting that urge to let that external pressure toward toward perfection um, find its way into something that is very pure and is very intimate and should be in many ways hours because it is very much this relationship that we're forming. Um for me w- was was one of the, the best things that I did that I looked at it as like you know what that let me I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna make a schedule um and I'll try my best to adhere to that schedule. Um but this is something that I go to and something that I've always gone to books either reading or writing um That has been my escape and, and, and has saved me in a lot of ways and rehabilitated me. And I don't want to mess up this relationship because then what will I
0: have to be those
1: things to me? Mm,
0: Yeah, absolutely. I watched this uh, documentary last night about uh, the artist Louise Bourgeois, and she said this thing that I adored. Um, She said, uh, the work is for pleasure. I feel better when I have completed a piece. I feel stronger. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's, yeah, it's so important to like couch it that way as this relationship with yourself, because that's Mm -hmm. absolutely what it is. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And you're working on a memoir now, right?
1: I am. So my memoir is about, um, it takes place during the war in Liberia and it is about the women who played a role in getting us, um, across the border Mm -hmm. Um, to Sierra Leone particularly women soldiers rebels Um, and it has fantastical elements because my um, my dad and my grandmother during the time during the war they they made us feel like initially we were in some game and everything was fine and the gunshots were were drums Um, and so I incorporate that into my understanding and my memories of the war because I would if anyone asks me I always say I had a very happy childhood mm-hmm. and even during the war, I think we we're largely protected from that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I I remain grateful and, and have always wanted to find a way to tell that story um, about how, as, again, it was people on the ground that was sort of playing a role in saving each other. And pr- particularly these these women soldiers, what happened is my mom was in New York when the war started And she went to Sierra Leone, um, and she was trying to find a way to get back into the country to get us out. And she met a man who told her about a network of women rebels who were essentially trafficking people's families out. And what would happen is if a family's walking with uh, a woman soldier or rebel, then they would say, oh, you know, this is my family. Like, these are my cousins. They're just coming with me. I'm just, you know, going because they had obviously access to roads and free ran of the country in ways that civilians didn't. Mm -hmm. And so um, it was actually one of these women that helped us cross the border into Sierra Leone and wanted to tell the story of these people who were very much trying to make sense of their circumstance of, you know, being a lot of them were obviously poor. And when the rebel armies came into their villages, they say, Oh, you know, we'll give you a bag of rice. You come fight for me, or I'll kill your family. If you don't come, come fight for me. And then these women who find themselves in this situation and are really then, um, in engaging with this industry, um, or this practice as a way for redemption. Mm. And so, um, I went back to Liberia a few times and was trying to look for this woman actually. And, uh, was unable to find her, but had conversations with um, former warlords and journalists who had spent a lot of time with child soldiers. Um, And and it's been actually very inspiring uh, in understanding some of what was going on during the war, during the Civil War that, again, didn't really have to do with um, a foreign agency coming over and saving, but the ways that people on the ground were being creative in in sort of like saving themselves and saving each other while also coming to terms with some of the really awful things that they were doing um so so yeah and that's going to be published by gray wolf as well um
0: likely late next year we'll see wow that <laughs> we'll sounds incredible how this, yeah uh, yeah thank you i i really I'm, love when you said about your grandmother and your father and the things that they you know, the way they kind of reinterpreted what was happening around you to to kind of uh, soothe you guys, it really speaks to like storytelling as an act of love, which I feel like doesn't mm-hmm. get talked about a ton, you know, but. Oh, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. And I mean, I, I was very resistant toward telling the story because when I initially approached agents with my novel, they would say, oh, well, wait, aren't you, you're from Liberia, right? You're an immigrant. And they wanted the immigration story mm-hmm. first. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that goes into the conversation about expectation bias where I was saying, well, no, you know, I want, I want this magical realism novel. And, and I, I just got really, I got really blessed, got really lucky into finding um, my agent, someone who genuinely believed in this story um, and then having a choice to, because I wasn't resistant to telling my immigration story um, because I do think that it's something that can speak to people specifically Mm -hmm. in elevating the stories of, these women who helped us. Um, but I wanted to tell it when I was ready, not right. when the industry said was time to get time to, you know, like, well, it because back I, to agency. Yeah. 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 Like it's like, well, if you're in like being an immigrant writer there, well, why wouldn't you just tell this first? Like, you know, that's, that's kind of, um, that's just how it goes sometimes perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want like an easy, if you're, you're not able to sort of find your way in fiction it's like, well, why not engage with nonfiction and enter that way? Um, so, so yeah, I got really lucky with my agent and I I'm so grateful to be able to share the story of these women and to have been able to have a choice in when I'm sharing it. Right. And Gray Wolf is such a great house. Oh my gosh. They're incredible. I couldn't have asked for better publishers. Like everyone is so on point and they're so passionate about each title that they represent. Um, that I, I'm so grateful for everyone on the team. And I've, I've had such a wonderful experience with them.
0: I, I just want to close with um, a question that I ask everybody at the end of our conversations, uh, which is what does creative satisfaction look like to you right now? Mm.
1: Creative satisfaction. I have issues with sleeping. So when I have like a full night's sleep, um, that generally indicates that I had a full day, um, and that I'm, I'm satisfied with where my life is and where my art is. And, um, so a full night's sleep. Beautiful. (laughs) All
0: right. Well, thank you so much. It's been really, really great talking to you. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Today's conversation was edited by Phoebe Wang and produced by Courtney Ballastier. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about at wmfapodcast.com. Have a question or an author you'd love to hear on the show? Email me at hello at WMFAPodcast.com. podcast.com and find me on Twitter and Instagram at cf And writers need feedback. If you're enjoying the show, please take a second to write a review on iTunes. The WMFA logo was created by Unsold Studio and the theme music is Jazz Dancer by Double Winter. Find them at doublewinter.bandcamp.com. WMFA is made in Detroit by Courtney Ballastier LLC. All rights reserved.